Well, Marcia and I have a tradition that we have sort of done our whole married lives. Every Christmas, we exchange letters. Of course, Christmas is a time when people exchange gifts, but we, we didn't really have much money to buy gifts when we were first getting started. And so, in place of getting each other what we maybe wanted, we decided that we would write each other letters. And so, for me, this goes back almost as far as the whole Mary and Joseph tradition of Christmas, right? Now, we don't have, um, we don't have any kind of a command from the Lord that you should write your wife a letter. We don't have anything that says this is what you must do, but we do it anyway. Now, hold on to that for a second, because the other thing you need to know is that pastors have a sort of mixed relationship with Christmas. And there are a number of reasons that I might struggle at Christmas, you might say. I think when, when it comes time for me to tell people about Jesus, it's pretty easy to... Um, confine him to a manger and think of him as a baby and then dismiss him once you know, Christmas is over. So I struggle with that, but the other reason I struggle is that Christmas always comes the day after Christmas Eve. And it's just like my own personal clutch starts to smoke when I try and shift gears from Christmas Eve down... And, have family time at Christmas, it just is hard to do. And then, don't get me started about those years when Christmas falls on Sunday like it did last time. But it is a challenge, let me just say. So, all that to say, that's the context, because I hope you'll go easy on me when I say it's easy for me to mail it in when it comes time to write a letter to my wife. So what if, what if I did one year, decide, I'm just going to write her the letter because that's what we do. I'm going to write her a letter because that's the tradition. What if it went like this? Dear Marcia, it's been busy this Christmas. I hope you're doing well. Here's your letter. In looking back on this past year, I have some suggestions for improvement. It could go that way, you know. I'm gathering that you maybe think it shouldn't. And maybe I'll get some counseling from you after the service. But you do have a sense that there's something wrong with a letter like that, isn't there? But what? I'm doing the tradition. I'm doing what we agreed to do. Yet somehow, you just have this nagging feeling, don't you, that I didn't quite get it right. And I didn't quite get it right. Why? 
Because it isn't really a matter of duty. It isn't really simply a matter of tradition. And that seems to be the problem. This morning, we're going to encounter some people who actually brought an issue like this to Jesus. And we'll hear what he has to say. They keep the tradition, but they miss the heart of it. So let's, let's read in our Bibles from Matthew chapter 15. So if you haven't opened your Bible, go ahead and do that to Matthew chapter 15. I'll begin reading in the first verse. And it'll be very clear to you immediately that this is about those traditions. <clears throat> then the Pharisees and the scribes came, from, came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles his father and mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father and mother, what you would have gained from me is given now to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So here it's easy to see, really, that you can miss the command of God because you're focused on other things. Even if that other thing began to help you connect to God, you can still miss it. You can escape, too, the commands of God by focusing on lesser things. And then, the teaching of people can serve as a substitute for God's Word. And when it does, there are catastrophic results. So let's look at this encounter and think about it for a moment. In verse 1, the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Now that may not seem, that may seem like a throwaway detail, but if you, if you were to pull out a map and everything, you'd realize the Pharisees and scribes made a trip of 90 miles or so from Jerusalem to the region of Gennesaret to find Jesus in order to complain about the bad manners of his disciples. I'm just going to say that is a lot of energy to expend for bad manners. In other words, they thought it must have been a big problem. Well, it turns out Depending on how you measure the size, it was a big problem. Several followers of Jesus, maybe, maybe as many as 15 to 20,000 of them, had eaten in the wilderness when Jesus fed them with um, a few loaves of bread and a few fish, that several tens of thousands of them ate without washing their hands. So, 
I suppose if you're worried about that, it is a big problem. Or it could be that since hand-washing was really not about manners, but about ceremonial cleanliness, like how are you going to be clean when you approach God? And they were right to say it's important that you not defile yourself with something unclean and then try and approach God. And so they're right about that. And if it's about that, turns out that sick people can defile you. The people with certain diseases could make you ceremonially unclean, so you shouldn't approach God. Maybe they were concerned about that. Because if you remember, after Jesus fed the 5,000, then he got, um, well, he walked on the water, of course. Of course. Like happens every day, of course. And then they get in a boat and they end up in Gennesaret. And what happens in Gennesaret? They recognize Jesus. And the word gets out. And everybody from many towns come and the sick people. Jesus heals. How does he heal them? Don't let this bother you. They touch him. The sick people touch him. Guess what happens when sick people touch you? You get defiled. You become common. So maybe we're got out that Jesus had healed people simply by letting them touch him. And their concern for Jesus. That maybe he would have defiled himself and he's not clean, so he should wash. So those are the two circumstances really that um, you would want to wash your hands if before you eat, but also if somebody or something you've you've touched somebody or something that would then you know share their defilement with you. Now, there isn't very much in the Bible that's going to help us with this. The priests did have to wash their hands before they went into the tabernacle or the temple, but <laughs> they also had to wash their feet. And so there is, this, there is this ceremonial washing that the priests had to do in order to approach God. And then if you did touch somebody dead or there was somebody with a discharge, you would have to wash your hands but it isn't like a rule that everybody has to wash their hands, at least that we have in the Scriptures. There is a tradition of the elders, though, that says you should wash your hands before you eat. And I think probably it's a very old rule. It's a very old tradition. Uh, in fact, in Job, he says, if I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lie. So, I mean, think about it. I don't know how many of we didn't have much snow this year, but if you go out and scrub your hands with snow, that's kind of unpleasant. Probably not as unpleasant as washing your hands with lie. And so you're like trying your best to scrub off the defilement. Or Psalm 26, 6, which says, I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar. So he's very careful about washing. Or Psalm 73, 13, all in vain I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. So it, there's a, a, a long 
history of washing hands as a way of expressing the desire to be clean, but it isn't necessarily a command of Scripture. And so to ensure their acceptance before God, it was important to make every effort not to be defiled, and if you were, then to wash your hands or your feet and somehow clean up the defilement. It's interesting that what they appear to have done is to take that rule that was for the priests or that rule that was for a few special instances and they applied it to everybody. Everybody should wash their hands, just in case. And that just-in-case idea is one that we need to think about for a minute. Because it looks like, the best that I can put it together, is that their idea was, we've got to make sure we are safe. We've got to make sure we stay clean. We don't want to take a chance that maybe accidentally there's some sort of violation or some sort of defilement. So, what did they do? They did what religious people have always done. Is there was this concern in the center that I want to approach a holy God, and in order to do that, must be holy. And so then, rather than actually deal with the holiness of God, they said, let's make a little fence around the center thing. Let's protect it so that nobody will accidentally come in that way with dirty hands or unprepared. And so it's this fence then that is called here in the text the tradition of the elders. Now, I just want to say, the tradition of the elders was well-intentioned. Let's not have, you know, you may remember the, the sons of Levi, when they offered unauthorized fire to God, boom, they were, um, they were dead immediately. Let's not have that happen anymore. Let's make a fence. Keep people safe when they approach God. And so, this fence is an issue. It's like a fenced yard that has keep off the grass signs posted on the fence. And so, they noticed, Jesus, your disciples seem to step on the grass. This is a problem. They are going to be in spiritual leisure. How can you provide spiritual leadership for God's people if your disciples don't wash their hands. How can that happen? And it appears to me that this particular rule started off with the best of intentions. And I think that's important. I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. It started off with the best of intentions. They wanted to stay pure before God. They wanted to be right with God. And so they made a hand-washing fence. Before we move to, um, to Jesus' response to them, it's probably worth noting that we have done that too. 
In fact, almost all of us think in those terms. How can we make sure that we uh, come before God with uh, hearts of worship or ready to, ready to meet God or whatever the case may be? And I, I think about the traditions the church has had or that I have run into over the years. I mean, it's a tradition the church meets on Sunday morning. You have to come to grips with that. Could be really good the church meets on a Sunday morning. But the church sometimes used to meet on Sunday night. Had a Sunday night service. And you know what? That Sunday night service, some of you may remember it, is a really good thing. And it started off for good reason. Or a prayer meeting in the mid- middle of the week. The prayer meeting in the middle of the week, I mean... Who among us will say a prayer meeting is a really bad idea? Probably nobody. Prayer meeting is a good idea. And it started off with good intentions. We're having an organ in the worship or a choir, all these things that are good things to help people engage with God. They all began as aids to loving and worshiping the Lord. And that's good. And we need to say that's good. Yet, it is possible to become so committed to the means of loving and worshiping God that we miss the goal of loving and worshiping God. It's it's possible for us to commit ourselves to the instrument or to the meeting or to the hand washing and we miss God himself. Because if you look at this interaction that these guys had with Jesus, it'll become obvious to you because they were worried about washing hands. They apparently didn't notice that the people didn't wash their hands because Jesus fed 15 to 20,000 of them with just a few loaves and just a few fish. Like, G, like God is here. It doesn't matter, you didn't wash your hands. Right? That, that seems to be their issue. And I think some of us can get so tied up with the means or the thing that we miss the reality behind the thing. And so we fixate in the wrong place. And so when that happens, what does Jesus do with it? How does Jesus handle it? Let's look at the next uh, couple verses. Verses 3 through 6. He answers them and says, Why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and he whoever reviles his father and mother will surely die. Anyone tells his father and mother what you would have gained from me is given to God. Then he need not honor his father and mother. So for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. And Jesus puts the shoe on the other foot. He points out that they're accusing the disciples of violating the tradition of the elders. He's saying, for the sake of the tradition of the elders, you violate the scripture. And that is a completely different level of problem. And it's possible that you can create a tradition 
Not that it's a well-intentioned fence around something important, like the, maybe the first one was. But they made this tradition that appears to be the means by which they avoided doing what God wanted them to do. They were doing something good in order to escape the demands of God to do something else that's good. So Jesus responds and points them to one of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. Now, if you're like me, you would probably try and dist- you distill the whole Old Testament. You'd probably put pretty near the middle, near the bullseye, the Ten Commandments. They're a big deal. And what did they do? By this new tradition that they created, they could avoid doing one of the big ten. They could avoid taking care of their parents if they kept this other tradition. And so the the tradition or the rule helped them avoid the command of God. So apparently in verse 5, they had the possessions or they had the means to care for their aging parents. And the command obligates them to do that. Yet, there was a tradition somehow created, and I'm just going to say probably by well-intentioned priests or clergy, to say, you should give, you should give to the Lord. And you know what? If you give the Lord what you would otherwise give your parents, it's okay. In fact, you get credit for giving it to the Lord. Good for you. And so that tradition, I don't know how it got started, but that tradition gave them credit for giving it to the Lord and allowed them to be hostile to their own parents. And you have to think, I have to think, something's not right about that. Because this fence is different than the other fence on principle. The other fence was about an activity that helps keep something else central. This one appears to be about an activity that helps you avoid something else that's central. Now it is tricky, isn't it? Because here, here there are two good things. Give to the Lord and take care of your parents. And one dollar, let's say, can't go both directions. So what are you going to do? Which good thing are you going to do? Apparently, one enabled them to avoid the other. And it isn't really about the dollar. It isn't really about the money that went one direction or another. It's about the intent of their heart to avoid the obligation that they had under God to care for their parents by doing something good or religious or that they get credit for by giving to the Lord. It was about the motive and the context in addition to the action itself. 
And so the question that Jesus is raising for them is, how does that gift relate to the other things that God wants you to be doing? And so I think it's worth pausing for a moment and thinking about this. You can be doing great, even really great, in one area of your life. But if you use even that great area to avoid obeying God in another area, that's a problem. God's not going to evaluate that and say, hey, that way to go on that. He's not going to say that. I think it's easy for us, impossible certainly for us, to cover up an area of weakness or downright disobedience to God by doing something extraordinary and virtuous in another area of our lives. So taken as a whole, we're really not getting it right, but if you look at one spot, it's wonderful. If you look at another spot, it's not so wonderful. So if you talk about it that way, it doesn't sound very good, does it? Like, I'm using this good thing to avoid this other good thing. I'm going to be disobedient in this thing and and obedient in that thing. When you make it really clear like that, it doesn't sound very good. But let's see what Jesus has to say about that in the next few verses, 7 through 9. So, well, it doesn't start off very well, does it? Verse 7. You hypocrites. You hypocrites. There you go. You know you're off on the wrong foot when Jesus calls you a hypocrite. That is not the evaluation I want to hear from him. Hypocrite means that they were acting or pretending. That they were putting on a face or playing a part. But they were not genuine. And so... His evalu- Jesus' evaluation is that it's hypocritical to be good in one area and to be disobedient in another area. To get credit for something good and try and hide something bad. To, pre- to not be all the way in, but to act like you are or to pretend like you are or, or to get people to notice that, oh, you're really doing great. In order to convince us of this, Jesus quotes Isaiah 29, 13. And he tells us the problem with traditions is that they let us hide behind them. And and when we hide behind them, it keeps our heart from following Christ all the way. Isaiah 29, 13 says, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. And the fear of me is a commandment taught by men. There is a way in which, and you probably don't even need me to tell you this, do you? You can talk a good game, but not play a good game. You can sing a good game or teach or lecture a good game, but if the Word of God doesn't penetrate into all the areas of your life, you are missing it. 
possible for you to block God from parts of your life by claiming He has the authority over other parts of your life. And it, one of the biggest dangers of being in a worship service on a Sunday is to draw near with your lips and have your heart be far from Him. But when you think about this, when you think about this, you, you know, don't you? Of course, you say. I mean, I remember growing up in Sunday school and hearing about uh, David, who was a man after God's heart, and then... Um, in 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord said to Samuel, don't look at his appearance or the height of his stature because I rejected him, talking about Saul. But the Lord sees not as a man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And God is always looking on the heart. God is always caring about the inside of you and what is going on in your heart. This, of course, is a game we've been playing all of our lives, isn't it? And if you're like me, you probably grew up having to say sorry to your siblings when you actually weren't sorry. Do you ever get that? Tell your sisters you're sorry. Sorry. That has happened before, hasn't it? And your heart's not in it, but your lips say it. And that's the problem Jesus is confronting, is this pretending that, in fact, you're something you're not. And it's worse still when your religious traditions enable that deceit. Sometimes those traditions start with the best of intentions. We want to make sure how, that we don't compromise the Word of God. That we hold fast to the holiness of God, and so we don't even come close to anything that might be bad. And we start to love that fence more than the holiness of God itself. Sometimes those traditions, though, don't start with good intentions. Sometimes they start with the worst of intentions. Like, how can I get credit for giving to God and still be rotten to my parents at the same time? Because that's what those parents deserve. And we get credit for the one and hide behind the other. But whether you have good motives or bad motives, the reality is this. God wants your heart. God wants your heart. And so, hard to be more clear than that. If your outward expression of faith or your tradition reveals your heart, that's great. 
if your tradition hides your heart, then Jesus wants to get your attention this morning. If you have traditions that express your love for Jesus, that's why they started, that's why you keep doing them, and your intent to love Jesus, even though some days it isn't so great, but that's why you do it over and over and over, that's great. But when you have a tradition that starts good, it's easy for it to lose its roots and for you to begin to mail it in and pretty soon for your heart to withdraw. And again, Jesus wants your heart. And so if you have methods or you have traditions or you have practices that help you hide your heart from the Lord or they help you avoid the Lord, then I think that Jesus would have the same strong words for you this morning that he had for the scribes and the Pharisees. And on his behalf, I appeal to you to repent. Because ultimately, God wants your heart. He, he, he wants to hold it close and he wants to change it. That's the promise of the good news. That's really what we go back to over and over when, if, if you're like me, you see that <laughs> you see the manipulation that your own heart is capable of. And you say, now what am I going to do? You have to admit, my heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. What am I going to do? Well, the good news is that Jesus has sealed the new covenant in his blood. This new covenant that God's going to make with his people, Jesus has brought for you and for me. And it says this from Ezekiel chapter 36. It says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statue and be careful to obey my rules. I don't know about you, but that's what I need. I need a spirit within me that causes me to walk in his statutes rather than lets me hide from his statutes and his commands. And so, there's no time like right now to ask the Lord for a new heart. There's no time like this morning to say, you know what? I'm tired of trying to do both the good thing and the bad thing. Trying to use my religion or my uh, traditions to hide. God, I need that new heart you promised. I don't want to just be close with my lips. I want to be close with my heart. And you can ask the Lord for a new heart, and He is delighted to give you that new heart. And this, this morning, if you're confident, yes, I do know the Lord has given me a new heart, and sometimes I do, like, 
struggle or sometimes I do have trouble with my traditions or with my heart drawing close, then I want to leave you with the words from Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, which encourage you to pay attention to this issue because it says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. There is life in paying attention to the words of Jesus that He wants your heart. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do want that life. Life that comes from You. That springs from the well of living water. Would You be gracious to us? And not let us give in to our own thing where we sometimes pretend or sometimes hide or sometimes fall in love with the means and not the end. God, would You help us to be genuine. People who from the heart love You as we started off the service with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we need You for that and so I ask You would help us do that. Bless us now as we articulate that even in our worship, even in our worship songs. Amen.